This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera and more. An oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera, of course. We're recording on December the 19th, and this is an incoming episode, a short look at what's coming up here at your in-series. I'm Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of In-Series, and your host. And we are well into the holiday season. I'm embarrassed to say the last podcast I made, I just heard the date, was uh, was November the 15th, <laughs> and it's already December the 19th. It's been a month. Um, part of that is because it's been a busy time here at In-Series. We had Operetta Wonderland, and we had performances of Creekery, the Mexican Singing Cricket, and Duke Ellington's Neighborhood playing to full houses of D.C. public school youth. Uh, it was a big success, but of course we've been really busy with that. And now we're in the midst of getting ready to produce From U Street to the Cotton Club, which is what I'll talk about later in this episode. Of course, in the holiday season, there are um, a lot of top ten lists, best of lists, and we were uh, surprised, but incredibly flattered to be named the number one classical music event of 2018. Uh, this was for our Verdi Requiem. We were sort of given a dual number one with the National Symphony Orchestra, not bad company, uh, who also did a Verdi Requiem, of course, in concert, uh, but a f- fantastic performance of that. Uh, and I, I want to just read what Anne Majette said in her, her listing of us for number one. She said, the diminutive in-series, and I've spent my life turning diminutive into a positive thing, so I'm not going to let that get me down. The diminutive in-series opened its first season under a new artistic director, Timothy Nelson, with a daring dramatization which juxtaposed an eight-singer requiem with excerpts from King Lear. Called Viva Verdi, the production revealed and knew not only how inherently dramatic the music is, but also how powerful it can be to strip away the masses of large ensembles that usually perform it and expose its vulnerability and its humanity. Uh, beautiful words, and we're, we're honored and flattered, and we're so pleased to be able to produce it, and it really represents the, the type of work that we, we intend to do and which we value in the, the current vision of the in-series. Uh, a conversation we've been having a lot recently around here has to do with race and opera, and uh, I have to admit I started it, putting my putting my foot in the in the bee's nest, as it were. I saw a production, a wonderful production of the Pearl Fishers, which is uh, one of my favorite operas. It's an opera that is much maligned, but I think it's a beautiful piece, and I love its naivete, and I love how in the Pearl Fishers one can hear. Berlioz, uh, not, not Berlioz, I hope, one can hear Bizet uh, as a young man figuring out how to write what would eventually become Carmen, especially the third act of The Pearl Fishers. You can really feel him figuring out the fourth act of Carmen. It's, it's brilliant writing, and people tend to say, of course, that the duet, uh, the tenor baritone duet of Fond de Temple, uh, which comes right at the beginning of the opera, is the high point of it, and the rest of it's downhill. Um, and that it suffers from having its strongest musical moment in the beginning, but I, I strongly beg to differ. I think the tenor soprano duet of Act Two, the baritone soprano duet of Act Three, um, the arias, uh, of course, Leila's second act aria, but also Zorga's aria in the third act, um, are powerful, powerful pieces. I, I think it's a wonderful piece. And this was a, a wonderful performance by a local uh, company uh, about the same size of the in-series, really impressive singers they had, wonderful conducting. 
but of course, the challenge with the pearl fishers is that it's set in ancient Sri Lanka and doing a period production uh, of it, uh, by period I mean traditional production of it, um, with uh, a, a predominantly Caucasian cast um, with the best intentions is still problematic and I, I found it illuminating but illuminating in how uncomfortable it made me to watch that sort of artifice and I've, I've spent the last several weeks trying to dig into why it um, brought those feelings out in me and it's not it's not a question that has an answer yet and and maybe it never will and maybe actually it's an answer that evolves so as soon as you have one by the next uh, year that's that's changed and I think maybe that's at the key the the appropriateness of doing these pieces of how we do these pieces works only in reference to uh, the time we're doing them in. So to have a piece now staged in that way um, seems problematic, whereas five years ago it wouldn't have, and 30 years ago, of course, it would have been completely natural. It's a conversation I look forward to continuing to have. Right on the heels of that, I went to see uh, Anything Goes, uh, which is a problematic piece, as, as everyone knows, because it has... Um, two Chinese characters who are very offensively written um, Asian stereotypes. Uh, and this was a production that a lot of work had gone into considering how to deal with that issue. And the solution that they arrived at was to uh, cast Asian actors, which, which is great, though raises a different, a different issue, which, which I'll touch on. Um, to, to, but they cast Asian actors, and they made those actors clearly uh, be completely assimilated into, I'm putting quotes in the air that you can't see, a traditional uh, American culture of the 1930s. So they, they had uh, fairly neutral accents and it was clear that they were hoodwinking the other characters by pretending to be Asian stereotypes. For me, this didn't solve the problem. <laughs> it didn't work, um, particularly at the end when some of the Caucasian characters dress as the in the Asian characters' clothes and pretend to be them and use... Um, really strong and, and I, this is me personally really offensive um, uh, Chinese accents uh, what made the thing more problematic for me was that so much work had gone into fixing the problem and uh, and at least for me I can only speak for myself it, it, it didn't uh, and that raises big problems um, and that's exciting because problems come with solutions but it, it raises big issues for the art form um, that I work in because like uh, classic musical theater, we deal with legacy pieces. Um, pieces like Pearl Fishers, but also like um, Otello, also like Butterfly, uh, Torendot. Um, and uh, how to do legacy pieces, I wanna throw on the table whether to do legacy pieces. 
um, seems, seems to be a, a big issue that we have to deal with. Um, I think of this because Anything Goes, of course, is, is, is an ultimate legacy piece. Um, and for me, there was another issue besides the two, uh, the two problematic characters. There's also um, the approach to colorblind or culturally inclusive or whatever um, phraseology you want to use for it, the idea of casting um, without regard to, to race, um, which is something I, I not only support, I, I think is just paramount and um, a beautiful expression. And uh, I think of it most notably in the work of Peter Brook, particularly his Mahabharata, which had one Indian actress, but had actors from all over the globe with accent dense um, uh, approaches to, to the drama utterly convincing. But the problem for me in doing a piece set in the 1930s with uh, a culturally inclusive casting um, is that it sort of ignores that there were racial issues, major racial issues in the United States of the 1930s. Um, and that's a problem that is bigger and I don't know exactly how to deal with it because to ignore it entirely is also offensive, I believe, and dangerous. Um, so anyway, those are those are conversations that need to be had, which we will be having next season. We have several pieces on the program, uh, which which I hope that we'll be able to announce by the by mid spring, uh, which will deal with deal with these head on, and which will force us as a company to have these conversations and to have these conversations in public um, about legacy, about race, about gender. Uh, in opera and how we as a, as a industry said pejoratively or art form said optimistically um, deal with that. But the main thing I want to talk to you today about is U Street to the Condon Club. This is our next production. It opens January 5th here at the Source Theater. It is a revival. I hesitate to use that word because um, because of its maturation, but but I'll speak to that in a bit. It is a revival of a revival <laughs> that we did in 2009, so it was so successful that we reproduced it that year. Um, and then after almost 10 years, it's coming back. Um, it is a celebration of uh, the music of, of DC, the evolution of African-American music from field holler songs, um, acknowledging an African past through gospel into the age of early jazz, mature jazz, um, big band. So, so all the way from, from traditional gospel songs to the music of Cab Calloway, uh, Duke Ellington, and Fats Waller. Um, particularly highlighting Duke Ellington because, of course, he is one of DC's native sons. And this story is told against the backdrop of U Street. Um, now, if you know where our offices are, we're in the Source Building at 14th and T. One block up is U Street. U Street was um, was the cultural vein of of the African American community in Washington D.C. for much of the 20th century. It um, is is known as known affectionately as Black Broadway. It was the site of many. Um, black-owned business firsts, 
um, and it housed many theaters. It was a cultural district. Of those theaters, the, the two main ones that are left are the Howard Theater and the Lincoln Theater. Uh, the Howard Theater was doing uh, Amateur Night at the Howard uh, long before the Apollo and was where the Apollo took the idea for Amateur Night at the Apollo. Um, this was a, a major, major um, vein of, of culture and thought and um, exalting um, the African-American experience after uh, Reconstruction South when so many um, African-Americans moved from the South to the North. Um, and it tells this story, though, with a lightness of being, a, a beautiful lightness of being, in the memory of a, a woman who was a, was a chanteuse, was a singer, who worked up from South Carolina to Washington, D.C., then on to New York, to the Cotton Club, the Savoy, eventually to Paris, and then returns home to Washington, D.C. Um, the play was originally directed and conceived by uh, Kenyatta Rogers, and of course we're very pleased to have him back. He's now um, quite an acclaimed director and an actor. He just did a acclaimed production of The Agitators with Mosaic Theater, which is a play about the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, um, for which he, he got a, a lot of praise, much deserved. And we couldn't be more proud to have been one of his first directing gigs and to have him willing to come back and work with us again. The script is by uh, Sybil Williams. She's the uh, director of African-American and African diaspora performance studies at American University. The script is a thing of beauty. I can't uh, overstate that. It is pure poetry. Um, it sings, and because it sings the way it goes from spoken word into music and out again and back again is seamless and integral and, and powerful. Uh, the cast is almost all the original cast, and that is also a really beautiful thing because these are people who over 10 years have, have grown personally and grown together. Um, they include uh, Dietra Battle, uh, Pam Ward, Brian Thorne, uh, and of course Kenyatta's wife plays the, the lead actress, uh, Michelle Rogers. Um, and then new to the cast, we have Greg Watkins. Uh, and so it's beautiful watching this family uh, rediscover this piece based on the fragments of memory they have, but also the, the new experiences that have shaped them as human beings. Uh, and on the piano is, of course, Stanley Thurston, who's been working with us for many years. I think U Street might have been the first or one of the first projects he did with us. Uh, and. I've, I've had the pleasure to fill in for him in a number of rehearsals um, and know how much of this music lives in his mind and travels just out through his fingers um, because I know how difficult it is with me because it doesn't live in my mind. Um, so it's been a real privilege to watch them in rehearsal. Now the piece is special for us also because of course uh, it comes on the heels of the 50th commemoration of the 1968 Martin Luther King riots, which destroyed many neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. and forever changed U Street. U Street was almost completely um, destroyed or uh, 
affected afterwards by the destruction of neighboring businesses um, during those 68 riots. And I, I think from then to now, there are only three black-owned businesses left on U Street. If you know this neighborhood at all, it's become a very exciting place to be now. It's regenerated. Um, but of course, these are new people. These are young urban professionals, myself included. Um, people that have come in and rediscovered this neighborhood and rebuilt it. Uh, and uh, it's changed radically from, from what it was 50, let alone 100 years ago. Um, so part of doing this is a way for us to discover, rediscover, uh, and celebrate the neighborhood where we've been welcomed and where we're proud to be um, recent residents verging on guests. Um, Something very special also about the piece is uh, a generational aspect, uh, which is that uh, when, they, when we first did the piece in 2009, uh, Kenyatta and Michelle's son, um, Kasai, was the assistant director. He was six years old. And uh, their youngest child, uh, Mecca, she was in Michelle's womb. Uh, and, and now... They're, they're 10 years older, and Kenyatta has brilliantly found a way to incorporate them into the piece as the grandchildren of, of this, uh, this figure, Malina, who, who lived on U Street. Um, and the whole piece now takes on an additional resonance, uh, an extra echoing. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. We're proud to have this piece on our season, and in uh, acknowledgement of that, we're doing a lot of extra outreach around it. And one of the, the most exciting uh, outreach activities we're doing is a walking tour. And I want to explain that a bit. When I moved to Washington, my apartment wasn't quite ready, so I spent uh, a week in an Airbnb. An Airbnb tends to send you things you can do while you're, uh, while you're uh, on vacation. Uh, and one of these that came up was the, the chance to do a Black Broadway walking tour to learn about the mural art and the history and the musical legacy of this street. And I, knowing that this show was coming up, I thought um, that it might be a great way to educate myself um, and to learn more about this city, which I've now made my, my home. It was a wonderful tour led by a historian named Timothy Wright, um, and I decided right on the spot that what we needed to do was to offer our audiences a chance to come before every show uh, and sign up for a walking tour. Uh, so that's what we're doing. Um, there's an add-on to the ticket. Um, it's really affordable. I think it's $15. Uh, it comes with hot drinks and hand warmers because it is January, and it'll be a hour and a half walking tour that starts here, that goes by the Howard, the Lincoln, explains all the murals, talks about gentrification, talks about the history of the riots, talks about the cultural legacy, the musical legacy of, of U Street, not just um, jazz, but also other um, DC musics. Uh, and it ends at Ben's Chili Bowl. Now, I'm sure Ben's Chili Bowl needs no introduction, but for those of you that may not know, Ben's Chili Bowl is one of those three remaining black-owned businesses. It is a Washington, D.C. landmark. It's um, right around the corner from us, and we're pleased to partner with them to offer a special discount on meals for our audiences. So that tour will end at Ben's to have dinner, and then you'll come right into the theater and see this amazing piece of art um, expressing the legacy and value and celebrating uh, DC's music and U Street.
um, I'm, I'm really proud that we're able to do that. Uh, in addition, on this, this walking tour that I took, um, Timothy mentioned to me go-go music. Now, not being from D.C., uh, go-go was not a type of music I'd ever heard of. Um, and, of course, go-go is D.C.'s own music that, um, with distance, of course, is an inheritance of its, of its um, gospel jazz legacies. It's sort of built into um, this form of music called go-go, which is bass-heavy, um, a little funk. Um, I'm still learning about it myself, but I knew right away we had to celebrate not just the history of, of D.C. music, but also what came out of that. So on January 19th, which is the penultimate performance, we'll be hosting a after party with uh, DJ Chuck Classic. Uh, Chuck Classic is a DJ for GoGo -Go Radio Live. He has a huge following. Um, it's $10 cover, uh, comes with a drink. It's a great way to um, celebrate DC, celebrate with friends, celebrate the new year. You don't have to have come to the show that evening. You can sign up on our website. Um, just come uh, and check us out. It'll be about 10 a.m. to 1 a.m. And we're really happy to be partnering with GoGo -Go Radio Live and Chuck Classic for that. So that's what we have on For You Street and the Con Club. We just had our director's salon, which was in the True Reformers building, which is across from Ben's Chili Bowl on U Street. It, is, it was the first African-American conceived, designed, financed, built building in America after Reconstruction. It's an important site, and more than that, it was the site of Duke Ellington's first public performance. And we had our salon there in the room where, where he performed, um, which, which is sort of, for me, the apex of what these director's salons are supposed to be about. Our guests were uh, Sybil Williams, Kenyatta Rogers, and Stanley Thurston, of course, but we also had Timothy Wright. And we were hosted, um, moderated by uh, Lewis Charles Hicks, Jr., who comes from the DC Humanities, uh, and we were proud to partner with them. So next podcast, I'll be posting all the audio from that so you can hear it. And I'm hoping we'll be able to have a chance to invite Sybil in to have a conversation about all these things. Who knows where it goes? It doesn't matter because with Sybil, um, it will always be luminescent. Um, she's an amazing artist, an amazing speaker, and I'll be happy to be able to sit in conversation with her. For now, uh, have a happy holiday. Happy New Year. I can't wait to see you all in the new year. And remember Rabindranath Tagore telling us that civility is the first act of art. Make our lives civil and we'll make our art civil.